Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. I keep hoping they'll cut loose and sing at one of these services. <laughs> We're thinking about this reality that, uh, that God was coming into the world, that the people living in darkness had seen a great light, and those living in the land of the shadow of death, a new light is dawned. And I, and I think when we hear those words, and perhaps we've heard them over and over, uh, maybe you hear them for the first time, but somehow we disconnect ourselves emotionally from the words. Uh, they're prophetic, they're something, but we're not sure how they grip into the place we are. And so when you think about the story, the gospel writers have this task, and the task is to somehow alert people to the fact that this is it. This is for you. I bring you glad tidings of great joy, which will be for all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Just the, the, the reality of the angel's message is, listen, it's glad tidings, it's great joy, it's for everyone, uh, a Savior, and he's Christ. He has the me- he's the messianic title. He's all of it. And so somehow, the, the gospel writers are undertaking that task to awaken people after the years of silence, the intertestamental period, uh, as we've closed out that Old Testament narrative. And if you follow the flow of the narrative, you, you have the building of this, the, the, the great kingdom, and then you have the fall into the exilic period, and exile occurs, and fracturedness. And, and then as the Old Testament sort of comes to a close... They're wandering back to Jerusalem. They're wandering back to Israel. They're coming back. The the temple is being rebuilt. The walls are being rebuilt. Uh, The law is being renewed. I mean, it's this great hopeful moment as the Old Testament closes. And then the gospel writers are shaking us and going, this is it. (laughs) He's here. It's it. You know, what you long waited and anticipated has Come. And Luke opens his gospel. We talked about it last week with those words. I am writing these things for you so that you may know with certainty the things you have been taught. That it may become personal to you. And that you know and embrace with some certainty the things that are the truth of the story that is unfolding. So we've been thinking about uh, the phrase from uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, it's always winter and never Christmas. And I think that conveys the same idea that Isaiah taught us. You know, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. Uh, That some things get frozen. And last week we talked about the fact that our thoughts get frozen. And today we're thinking about the fact that our hearts get frozen. And what that looks like and what that means. Five years ago, uh, I opened Advent, and I had written these words, and uh, you've probably not necessarily heard them, because usually when I write words for a sermon, I don't necessarily speak them. So I thought maybe I could go back five years and just read to you what I wrote, even if you've never heard it before. This is what it sounded like on paper. There's a very literal sense in which life is a journey It offers us a very clear and celebrated beginning. There's a distinct climb upward as we develop over time into some kind of functional creature. 
Along the way, we reach our peak. Thank God none of us know in real time where or when that occurs. Then comes a clear process of shutting things down and letting things go, which again, graciously, we can only see clearly in retrospect. Life consists of a distinct beginning, a middle, and an end. These are so obvious that we immediately assess the life location of others. Not exactly, of course, but we generally know in an instant the approximate progress in life of everyone we meet. We could logically admit that what happens to us physically is also happening in us in a much more hidden and secret place. There's an emotional journey that we are making. That journey is much less definable, and a view of its map must reveal the vast expanses of desert, immense mountains, terrifying crevasses, raging rivers, and proverbial deep waters. The emotional journey is unpredictable, and in the chaos we become divided. Some parts of our hearts journey on to maturity while other parts remain infantile. Other emotions get old before their time. I imagine little tombstones must dot the landscape all along the journey where pieces of our hearts lie buried because they got broken or died. Some baggage we drag along with us as dead weights of our emotional reality atrophied from lack of use, our lack of care, our lack of recognition. And then... I think when we begin to think about that, that reality, that, that physically we see ourselves aging, we see ourselves, I don't know, maybe some of you are still functional. <laughs> Amen? I mean, the older you get, you know, it, it, just the reality of your own aging is true. It's real. It's a real thing. It hits you. I don't know at what age, but at some age, and it's long before my age now. <laughs> I've known it for a long, long time at this point. And, uh, and usually it's subtle. You know, it comes on very slowly. Usually your eyes go, you know, like you turn 40 and then you're like, you just can't see anymore, you know. But we know this. this. This process of aging is very vivid to us. But emotionally, we're on a very similar journey. Things are moving forward. And something's happening in us. And this, this journey of life, both the physical and emotional and spiritual, particularly the spiritual, God extends to us in his creativity and opportunity. And he says, I'd like for you to make some choices about how you approach this reality of your own humanity, your, your physical condition, your emotional condition, your spiritual condition. And I'm inviting you to either walk by faith or by sight. Now, you and I, we love to walk by sight. I love to walk by sight. I want understanding. I want insight. I, I, I want clarity. I want to I be able to see what's going on and make decisions and have a plan and be organized. And mostly, I really want to be in control. And then God says, the thing about it is, if you walk by sight, it's going to take a lot of your emotional energy and a lot of your brain power. And you're going to spend a lot of time just trying to figure it out, just thinking about it, just trying to see clearly, just trying to, you know, map some strategy. So here's another possibility. You can walk by faith. Now, when you walk by faith, you sort of surrender a lot of things and you let go of a lot of things and you, you invest a lot of trust that in all things God's working for the good and, you, you know, you try to uh, shake it off. But somewhere you know in your heart that if I'm going to walk by faith, I have to let go of my ability to always understand, and particularly my ability to be in control. And that's hard. And so we find ourselves, as we wrestle in this reality of walking by faith or by sight, 
Something happens to the way we think and something happens to our hearts. Something happens to our emotions. And so while we're invited, while we're encouraged to, to experience and live out the fruits of the Spirit, and I love that phrasing because, you know, who has to generate fruit? We just put the right things in and the fruit grows, right? And we're invited to traffic in the richer emotions of human existence. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness. But boy, that's not automatic, is it? It doesn't come naturally, necessarily. There's a lot of things about the condition of our heart that matter. Helen Keller says these words, The best and most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart. It's all good unless your heart's not quite working right. John Lennon once said, One thing you can't hide is when you're crippled inside. When things don't work quite as well as they should emotionally. And it's not that we lack feelings. Most of us have many, 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 many feelings. Amen? Sona Burkhan in his book, A Thousand Flamingos, writes these words, Sometimes I think I need a spare heart to feel all the things I feel. Wouldn't that be nice if you had a spare heart? <laughs> I mean, if you could compartmentalize like that and just save all the negative emotions for your spare heart and you just used your real heart for the good stuff, for the positive things. Well, there's an imagery that goes on in the prophetic story and there's an imagery that is created and spoken of by a number of the prophetic writers. And it is an image that basically suggests that people over time develop a heart of stone and that one of the great anticipatory things about the uh, about God's work in us is that he takes our hearts of stone and he gives us back a heart of flesh. And nobody articulates that better than, than the writer Ezekiel. And so I know we all need to hear a little about Ezekiel this morning because nothing says Christmas like Ezekiel. <laughs> if you've ever read the book of Ezekiel, uh, it is super weird. Uh, you know, some people say the book of Revelation is the most uh, unusual book in the Bible. Um, I don't know. Ezekiel's right up there. Uh, he's having visions of creatures and four wheels and things are spinning around. And it's, uh, he's got, uh, there's a whole dry bones, um, you know, the valley of the dry bones. You guys know the story? Or yeah, some of you know? How many of you have read the book of Ezekiel? Oh, okay. So I can basically tell you anything I want. <laughs> so uh, Ezekiel serves at a time of great difficulty. So he, he, he serves in the exilic period, which is a hard word because it sounds kind of like exhilarated. No, no, exile, exilic. <laughs> and he serves at the very beginning of the southern kingdom's exile. So if you're trying to get you know, your history in order, which I know you all do want very much... <laughs> The northern kingdom has fallen. 250 years earlier, the northern kingdom was destroyed by Assyria. Now, the southern kingdom has come under the control of Babylon. And there's a lot of things that happen in that process. But in 597, Babylon comes and captures Israel. And they take 10,000 captives and they carry them off into captivity. And among those people are a young man, 25 years old. His name is Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is taken to a small... Uh, encampment, a refugee camp that's a hundred miles south of Babylon, and, and it's on the Chabar River, and, and it's called Tel Abib. 
And, and that's where he begins to live. And, and, and five years later, at the age of 30, he is called to be a prophet of God. Now, Ezekiel is from the priestly line, and so had he been back in Israel uh, at the age of 30, he would have taken on his priestly duties. And so we see this symmetry a little bit because God calls him at the age of 30. And so Ezekiel spends a ton of time and energy in his writing talking about the temple. In fact, if you go back to the first imagery and the imagery of the four wheels and that stuff that goes on in the beginning, what we're learning and what we're sort of being told in that symbolism and in that vision is that God is mobile. He's not stuck over there in the temple the way Ezekiel has always been taught and thought. And that he thought he would serve God over there in the Holy of Holies. Now he's over here in a little refugee camp on the Chabar River called Tel Aviv, and, and God calls him and says, listen, uh, I can be in a lot of places at once, so stop lamenting that you're not a priest. You can be a priest here, and you can be a prophet here. Now, sadly, the role of priest and prophet over in Jerusalem was a lot more fun than the role of being prophet in exile. So, so Ezekiel is a contemporary of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. There's not a lot of good things to talk about. You understand? I, I mean, it's great to be the to be the prophet and to be the preacher when you're telling good news. But it's not as much fun when you're telling bad news. And of all of the positions to be in, Ezekiel is placed in this position where he is invited to talk to the people about what God is doing. Now, he is 11 years in front of the actual destruction of Jerusalem and the fall of the temple. But he sees clearly that the destruction of Jerusalem and the fall of the temple is coming. And so he is speaking to the people in the refugee camp words of prophetic anticipation of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. He's not popular. Because <laughs> there are always prophets saying, don't worry about it, it's going to be okay. For 30 plus chapters, Ezekiel talks about the judgment of God and the destruction of Jerusalem and the fall of the temple. 30 plus chapters. And then like all prophets... He begins to turn his attention to something much more hopeful. So I've just gathered a, a, a little outline of three brief passages of Scripture that sort of give you a sense of Ezekiel's teaching. The first takes place in the 11th chapter, and then we'll move forward from there. Ezekiel eleven seventeen. Therefore, say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will gather you from the nations... And bring you back from the countries where you've been scattered. I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone. And I will give them a heart of flesh. And then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And they will be my people and I will be their God. Early on. Chapter 34, verse 23, I will place over them one shepherd, my shepherd David, and he will tend them, and he will tend them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Ezekiel 36, 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols, and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, and I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I, I see four things that I think matter significantly to you and me 
as we think about what it means for us to experience a frozen heart, where it is always winter and never Christmas, where somehow the journey of life has allowed us to traffic in emotions that are not the richest emotions of human existence, that, that for some reason we feel stuck, we feel trapped in cynicism or skepticism or fear or anxiety or depression or being overwhelmed because those are the natural tendencies of our heart. And we cry out. There's a part of us. And I wonder sometimes do we, do we just shut our brains down? The people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. Isaiah writes these words to these exilic people. To these people whose homes have been taken from them, whose families have been fractured, who, who basis, the basis of their faith, yes, they weren't practicing it very well. Yes, there were all kinds of issues, but it was still the basis of their faith. That, that had been ripped away from them. So when Isaiah speaks about these people living in darkness, this... This isn't sort of some sort of religious prophetic doublespeak. He's talking about people whose hearts have become darkened, who live in a place where death feels like the reality, where they can't breathe very well, where the emotions in which they traffic are not the richer emotions, but the ones that feel heavy and overwhelming. And it's into this place that while Ezekiel brings them through an understanding that God hasn't left them, and here's the thing, you know, when there's consequences for failure, it doesn't mean God has left us. And so he spends 30 plus chapters trying to convince them God hasn't abandoned us. You know, we're involved in this covenant relationship and we didn't make the best choices along the way, but God hasn't given up on us. And so he begins to speak to them at a very emotional level. There are four aspects of this prophetic word that I think matters to us in very, very important ways. Number one, Ezekiel says they can anticipate that God will gather up what has been scattered and he will rebuild what has been destroyed. It's one thing to go through difficult times. It's another thing to go through difficult times where there's no hope of recovery. And the children of Israel are in this space in which they're living and looking and, 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 and looking at, there is no way, there is no way that it's going to come back together. It has been scattered and destroyed in such a way that, that there is no way that it can be put back together. It just can't come back together. There's no hope. There's no way of going forward. And Ezekiel stands in the middle of that and says, listen, I just want you to know that God's going to gather up what's been scattered and he's going to rebuild what's been torn down. And I want you to focus on that and I want you to think about that. I want you who are living in darkness to understand that a time is coming when God will gather what is scattered and rebuild what is broken. And I'll tell you, you know, when, when you and I go through hard times, isn't that part of growing up? When you go through hard times as a kid, what does it last? Three minutes? Amen? I mean, you know, you didn't get the cookie, you got the cookie. You didn't get the cookie, you got the cookie. Come on. Amen? But as you get older, it lasts a little longer, doesn't it? And when you encounter a process in your life, something you did, something somebody else did, something you can't control, 
And you're not looking at hours or days or weeks or months or years. You're looking at decades of recovery. Listen, that's hard. That's when your heart turns to stone. <laughs> when you say, you know what, there's going to be a lot. I was hoping for a sprint. This is a marathon. And I don't know if I got it in me. And that's, that's the environment in which the prophets are speaking. <laughs> and Ezekiel is saying, listen, I just want you to know this. When your heart feels most desperate... He will gather up what is scattered. He will rebuild what has been destroyed. I want you to hang on to this. I want you to say it to yourself over and over. I want you to traffic in this information. God is going to do the work to gather what is scattered and rebuild what is broken. And then he says, I also want you to understand and I want you to live in this place in which you anticipate that he will sprinkle water and cleanse you. Now, we, we immediately identify with this imagery because we've kept it in the Christian church. Uh, we, we've hung on to this cleansing with water, the sprinkling of water, the, the act of baptism to restore. But what, I, what Ezekiel is talking about is not some ritual that takes place. But he's saying, listen, God's not just going to gather what's been scattered and rebuild what's been destroyed. He wants to cleanse you in such a way that it restores your innocence and your wholeness. I don't know about you, but uh, I somehow have come to believe that cynicism is more mature than joyfulness. I mean, it seems to be a general default setting. That, that, that the sense of negativity is more intellectual than a sense of optimism. And it turns out that if you're really good at negativity, you can get a job in television. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, who are the very best cynics and skeptics in the world? Well, let's give them a microphone. By all means, let's interview them. Let's tell their stories. Let's talk about that. Instead of saying, how about we get somebody who's really good in the richer emotions of human existence? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, patience, faithfulness, self-control. Why don't we let them talk for a while? Because somehow we've convinced ourselves as a culture and society that it's more valuable to be cynical. And so what, what Ezekiel is saying is... You don't just need some things to be rebuilt and gathered. You need a heart that becomes innocent again and whole again. We had all three of our grandchildren with us all day yesterday. Yeah, so awesome. I'm tired. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's Christmas. The house is decorated and... Uh, and, you know, Christmas is a season of indulgence. You are such hypocrites. You know it is. And even if you're not indulging, almost all of us are like, well, it's Christmas. Let them have the candy. You know, you let your kids indulge at least. And it is amazing to me how excited kids can get over the smallest things. I mean, it, it's just incredible. Like, step one, the door opens, and they run in. Papa! 
Like I'm the most wonderful human on the planet. Like they didn't forget that the generous sharing of their affection matters. Like, like they're not cynical yet. They don't know. They think when they run with their arms open, you're going to catch them and scoop them up. And you know what? Unless you're the Grinch or something. But do you ever stop and ask yourself, when did I lose that? I'm not going to run through my arms around people. Who knows what they'll think or what they'll say? Amen. I'm speaking metaphorically now. When did we lose our ability to feel the richer things of life? Because our innocence got stuck. Something we did, something somebody else did, something that happened to us, the circumstances of our lives. But our hearts take on a quality of hardness. We mentioned to our grandkids last night, hey, would you guys like to make popcorn? You, you would have thought, just popcorn. And it's an air popper. When you can get thrilled about popcorn or a cookie or simply being with people you love, what happened to us? So that Ezekiel says, he's not just going to restore and gather. He's going to cleanse so that your heart returns to its place of innocence and wholeness. And then he says, number three, he's going to put a new spirit in you. He's not just going to take and, and, and gather and rebuild and then cleanse and create some wholeness because then into that now very ready space, he's going to send his new spirit to dwell in us. And, and I don't know, sometimes when you think about this whole issue of faith and, and religion and belief and maybe, you know, you're here and you're not sure where you are in that journey, welcome. We're all not sure where we are in that journey. We're figuring it out together. We are, we are journeying in our faith together. But one conclusion I came to really early in my journey of faith is this. I don't have enough in me to get it done. I mean, if you say, I got to get up every morning and be happy, you know, I got to get up every morning and be full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness. That's perfect. That's so perfect. That is how you respond to a sermon. <laughs> Get your hearts all cleansed and working right. I know this. I long for the power of the Spirit of God to be at work in me to fill in what I lack. I cannot do this on my own. And Ezekiel says, listen, I know you're desperate. I know you're living in darkness. I'm telling you a time is coming. There is a time coming. I want you to hang on. 
I want you to believe. I want you to anticipate. David will return to... I love this whole... If you don't know your history, you read that. Yeah, David, blah, blah, blah. David be a shepherd, blah, blah. David is dead. Centuries dead when Ezekiel writes. He's not talking about the coming of the monarchy. The monarchy is gone. It's over. David is long gone. The mention of his name inspires something in them to remember a time when things worked right. And then he couldn't possibly have a... Don't you think Ezekiel in heaven must have later, when Jesus finally came, he must have gone, Man, I was so good. Because <laughs> listen to his imagery. David will return. The prince. The shepherd. He's talking about the Davidic line, the messianic moment. He's, he's getting this messianic story woven into this story of exile. He's going to put a new spirit in you. He's going to intervene. Come, Emmanuel. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. I bring you glad tidings of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And he's saying he's going to put a spirit in you. And for you and I, when we live in this place of frozen heart, we say, God, I want you to gather what's been scattered. I want you to rebuild what's been destroyed. I want you to cleanse my heart and restore to it its innocence and its wholeness. And I want you to put a new spirit in me. I need that. And finally, he says, he will take our hearts of stone and he will give us hearts of flesh. What a powerful image. What a powerful reality that he will take what is hardened in us what we cannot do for ourselves, because, you know, how do you soften your own heart? And most of us have complex hearts. I mean, we don't just have a heart of stone. If we did, we'd sort of be, you know, we, we wouldn't get hurt so easily, right? I mean, you know, what was that great song Simon and Garfunkel sing? I am a rock. I am an island. And a rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. And we sing that like a pop song. Hey. Oh, I love this one. It was the 70s. We didn't know a lot. But don't we, I mean, we do feel that way. I wish I had a heart of stone that didn't get hurt so easily. I wish I had a heart of stone. That, I mean, a heart of stone, maybe that could be a good thing. Except it isn't. Because we have complex hearts and our hearts don't become stone like that. They just become hardened to certain things and to certain people and to certain emotions. And other parts of our heart remain incredibly vulnerable. And when you have a heart of stone, it has a tendency to keep the good things out and let the bad things in. And Ezekiel says, I anticipate a time, and I want you to anticipate as an exilic people living in a time of darkness when you, do not, when you are walking by faith, a time when Jesus will come, when he will intervene, when David will sit on the throne, where there will be a prince and a shepherd, and he will shepherd you. <laughs> and he will gather what's been scattered, and he will rebuild what's been destroyed, and he will cleanse and create a wholeness and an innocence and put his spirit in you, and he will take that heart of stone. And he will give you a heart of flesh. I don't know about you, but I, for me, that the cry of my heart then becomes, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. I want you to do this work in me. I desire you to do this work in me. 
I love in the New Testament how we get these images over and over of Jesus encountering people who are still anticipating the coming of Messiah. So we have this profound moment in Luke in which he goes to the temple and the scroll is open to the book of Isaiah and he is invited to come and read and he reads and God has bound up the brokenhearted and he has set the prisoners free and then he rolls up the scroll and he sets it down and he looks at the crowd and he says, today these words are fulfilled in your hearing. I'm him, the woman at the well. Someday when Messiah comes, he will explain all of this to us. I who speak to you am he. And I wonder what would have to happen in your journey, in your life, in your heart, in your home, in your family, for somehow the Spirit of God to stand in front of you in such a way and say, no, no, this is it. It is available to you now. You are not living in the season of exile. You are living in the season of Emmanuel, God with us. Don't you love that moment in the Grinch where he has his heart grow and he says, I'm feeling and I'm leaking. <laughs> May that be true of us. May that be true of every one of us. God, would you help us? As we think about our hearts and we think about being frozen in a place where it's always winter and never Christmas and anticipating somehow that you intend to gather what's been scattered, to rebuild what's been destroyed. You intend to cleanse us and give us a, a working heart of wholeness and innocence. You extend to us the offer of your spirit, a new spirit in us. And to take our hearts of stone, complex, multi-layered, and to give us back hearts of flesh flexible, resilient, strong. So as we close this service, as our prayer counselors move into place, we are genuinely celebrating. We're not waiting for something else to happen. We live in this moment of God with us. And while each of us desires and needs to respond in some way to your word, we pray that you would allow us to celebrate together and that you would bring Christmas into every frozen heart. We pray that it would be so and we pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said together, Amen. Amen. Will you stand? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.